Well, hello and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. This is episode 224. We have a special guest today. I know I say that every week and it's like having children. It's hard to say which is your favorite. Their favorite is the one that's in front of you usually. And Ted is calling us from Oakland, California. So all of you in the Bay Area, he's kind of a neighbor and he has a new book out that came out in December, I believe. Yes, called Winning Through Platforms. So all of you in tech are going to, you know, this is going to be like, oh yeah, platforms. And and if you're not in tech, if, you know, those of you who are in the banks or the insurance companies, you're going to learn like what's going on and making big businesses competitive from somebody who's on the cutting edge of that whole transformation. And you're going to be able to show up as a more senior thinker, which is gonna facilitate that promotion and pay bump. So I'll just say what I always say, you're welcome. So Ted, welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to have you and your ideas about competitiveness through platforms. You're a growth guy, like you help companies grow. You, they either grow or, or Ted goes out of business. So obviously he's, he's good at that. What was your path to that? I've always found the customer to be the most interesting part of the business equation because they're an adaptive animal. They want something until you give it to them and then they want the next thing. They take what you just gave to them for granted. And if you mix technology, which is always evolving with customers who are already always evolving, getting those two in sync to keep my company just ahead of the customer as they evolve is for me, the art of growth in a modern world. I've worked with tech clients for decades on questions of growth. They can range from systems companies, you know, in an Intel or an HP, where I'm marrying hardware, software, data services to software companies that are hoping to be stitched together their product line to become platforms and Autodesk or an Atlassian, we know would be examples of those. To born as platform, you know, the sales forces of the world, you know, GCP, Azure, et cetera their services to others or companies like OneTrust who might be born as a privacy platform. And then a lot of companies that are um, physical companies that have software now embedded in their hardware, an automotive maker whose car is a platform rolling down the road, a sneaker maker who might have platforms on the bottom of their soles, a, a mattress maker whose sensors might be measuring my sleep as I sleep and turning a mattress into a sleep service and a healthcare service. So platforms are transforming all aspects of business. You know, we try to define them, Laura, in a very customer-centric way. We say that platforms are a part of an overall story of how digital has lit the customer journey, starting in 1969 with Intel's launch of the semiconductor. And by by the turn of the century, I could now watch the customer go shopping and talk to them as they were shopping through my website, thanks to the internet, thanks to connected electronics. And so we say customers have a choose journey as they're selecting and a use journey as they're using what it is they bought. I could light up the choose journey through digital around 2000. And nobody survived and thrived without putting up, and nobody said, I'm gonna skip that website step and not talk (laughs) to my customers while they're choosing, and I'm gonna thrive anyway. But the use journey at that point was still dark. It was between 2005, 2010 that the smartphone was invented. Thanks, Apple. Thanks, Samsung, where cloud service providers became cloud service providers by 
renting out their data centers and enabling cloud-hosted software. And all of a sudden, around 2010, a little bit before, I could begin to watch the customer use what it is that bought and talk to them as they were using. And so we call platforms the tech stack that lights up the use journey that's always been dark. And we say that a platform approach to business is finding ways to be able to create data telemetry around what my customer's doing. It could be their thumb swiping their phone, could be their fingers typing on their keypad, but it could be their hands on the steering wheel. It could be their, if I'm progressive insurance, their foot on the accelerator. Are they driving safely or not? Will I offer them a lower insurance price if they let me watch them drive? It could be higher putting a barcode reader in the refrigerator and letting me look on my cell phone as to what's in the fridge tonight, how close to expiration date, what could I make out of what's in the fridge, and do I need to order from Whole Foods what I might want to be sent to my house so I can make the dinner I want. All of those are examples of use visibility and interaction and value added that then creates a more loyal, more valuable customer. And all the data telemetry that I keep around my usage interaction, I then can have insights on as to what to offer the customer next to grow their lifetime value. And so I get into this virtuous cycle of use visibility leading to choose excellence, leading to higher lifetime value. And then I create a whole customer coalition that attracts new customers in. So that's the platform story. And we'd say platforms are to the 2020s, what websites were to the 2000s. Oh, great analogy. But we have the, I'm thinking of the privacy issue. Is that not, how does that factor in? Yeah, well, so often there are first party data. If I'm logging into an account, I'm, I'm usually giving people permission. It's different than saying, can you keep my cookies about my shopping experience forever on my website? And Europe would say, no, you can't. And the US would right. say, no, you can't, depending on the level of, but can you keep the information about my using your product? Often it's a yes, you can, because I'm adding value to the customer as they do that. So that's more first party data. Now, there are also privacy questions that come up on, will I let you watch? Will I not log in? Will I try to use the product in a different format? Do you know my IP address, but not who it is? Mm -hmm. So there's different aspects of privacy. So platforms play that role. But usually one of the key things in platforms is if you create enough value, the customer lets you watch because there's an exchange value for visibility for value and they can't participate unless they have that. They can't get the real-time advice and support if they can't do that. So it's all about managing that connection responsibly and I can abuse it, in which case the customer will kick me out and go somewhere else. So I think the book we, we wanted to write was, hey, this is really about a 10-year-old, 15-year-old discipline. You know, we've had hundreds of over a hundred years to get good at pre-purchase marketing. It's still a fairly new discipline and there haven't been strategy books written for a platform era. They're mostly around a product line era if you look at your classics and strategy. So we said, how do we write a book for competitive strategy and growth strategy in a platform world? So that's what winning through platforms is. The subtitle is how to succeed when every competitor has one. And the idea being that I might have been special in the 2010s by having a platform. I'm no longer special because my competitors have them too. My customers are getting savvy as to how to choose between and work around. So I no longer get a free pass 
I now have to earn choice and win customer value growth. And this book is about ways to do that. We've structured it as a playbook like any sports team would have. Mm-hmm. 24 plays. If I, Since we're in the football moment, <laughs> right. you know, my offensive, my defense, or my run plays, my pass plays. So there's not a, you have to use this play. There's a, what does the field look like? What's the situation look like? Which play would work for me here? So we've structured 24 different platform plays for success. If your listeners want to become fluent in ideas for moving their company forward through platforms, and if they want to have a strategic mindset at the table with suggestions, this book would be a rich resource. Not everyone listening, but a lot of them are at that pivot point in their careers where they've been extremely successful executing and operating. And now they're being asked or they figured out, I need to be bringing ideas to the table, being strategic. And so this book is going to help you with that. Hopefully it would be a treasure load of ideas. We studied 50 leading platform companies over 10 years and said, what are the moves they made? And then we distilled that down into this playbook. We organized the plays to give you strategic advantage, in-market growth advantage, and internal alignment advantage. So there are some plays for each of those. Uh, Under strategic, how do I think about using platforms in my business portfolio? What are my choices? And how do I design platforms for distinctiveness? So there are design plays. In the growing in-market, we have demand management plays. How do I grow my platform faster? And how do I innovate on it? And then finally, under internal alignment, how do I get go-to-market teams and product innovation teams to better align? And how do, if I'm a CEO or a senior business leader, how do I orchestrate the way that I run the company because of the interdependence the platforms bring? I have to run the company in new ways. So there's a handful of plays in each of those six categories designed to give me those advantages. And then each play has a name and each play has a chapter. And those chapters are written like workshops. So for instance, Brands Get a Brain is a chapter. And it's how do I brand my intelligence and where can intelligence as my customer uses add value to them? Or Reality Shifts is how do I use extended reality throughout the platform journey? And where does it add real value to customers? And how might I innovate on that? Or how do I do momentum marketing to get the customer to lean into a broader relationship with me in in advance of trying to do cross-sell and upsell? How do I soften the ground, getting them leaning forward with aspirations to do more with me? What are the specific shifts that you lead people through in embracing this new focus on the customer journey? Yeah. User journey, I guess, is the right word. I think it's right. It's user journey, but it could also be sponsor journey. While product line companies have a product and a customer, Mm-hmm. Platform companies have a platform and what we call a customer coalition. And that customer coalition can have users, sponsors, service providers, creatives, advertisers, and rule makers. We create six archetypes. And part of designing my platform is to design a customer coalition that inherently gives me strategic advantage. Who's in my customer coalition that I'm going after? How do I define it? We should talk about Uber as an example. Uber, for the first five years of its existence, had a pretty simple customer coalition. I have drivers and I have riders. And the mantra of the company was number one market share in every market in the world. And that would give us strategic advantage. 
found out it wasn't true. Customers found workarounds. They didn't have a natural information monopoly. I I can have a, a Lyft app on my phone and a Uber app. I can call both drivers and cancel the one that doesn't come first. I'm not locked into them. And they were bleeding money in various markets. So what they did in management team number two is say, let's get out of some markets where we don't think we're competitive or let's partner. Where we are, let's build a much richer customer coalition, restaurant owners, freight shippers, truck drivers. And they basically created a, I need a ride. I need food or products delivered to my home. Truck drivers need to match up a, a ship coming in with a semi-truck that they have available that's empty. And they began to use their platforms in ways that that richer customer coalition began to give them differentiated value propositions to drivers against DoorDash or against Lyft, differentiated value propositions like Uber One to consumers like you and me. There's an ironic thing called loyalty as a service, which Amazon Prime is the game of You, the consumer, pay me to be loyal to me. Yes, I hate that as a consumer, but I how many years? (laughs) It's a new category. It's a new move within platforms called loyalty as a service, where if I can say the cost you're going to pay to me, customer, is overwhelmed by the benefits I'm going to give back to you. So Amazon says, pay me $170 and I'll give you $800 back a year. But Allison, it incentivizes me to then use that customer. Yes, it does. And it also creates the fear because I'm just speaking as me and I'm sure other people are like, you think, should I cancel it? But you're afraid to. You're literally afraid. Like you're going to miss out on something because of that, that value proposition. So customer coalitions, you know, some a lot, some of your customers, some of your listeners will be in businesses at bottom up buying motions, the individual user in yes. the company or, some of that tops down motions where the senior executive decides for everyone what platform we're going to work on because I want them all to work together in any greater way. So the way that I design my platform to be experiential mm-hmm. to these different customers, you ask about mindset shifts. The first mindset shift is we call kaleidoscopic value mindset. The story of the inventor of the kaleidoscope, a British scientist in the 1800s, he said, hey, I can take 24 pieces of colored glass and two mirrors, and I can give you a number of beautiful views that has 30 digits to it in terms of how many views I can give you out of those 24 crystals and two mirrors. Because every time I turn, I get a unique combination of things. So we say the mindset of a modern platform designer, you have code, you have databases, you have APIs, user experience layers, But with that, you can create a beautiful view for all the different members of your customer coalition. And you have to be more customer-centric than ever as a technologist because you have to look at it from this customer's angle than that customer's angle. So the restaurant owner for Uber is using an app that doesn't look like the car driver, that doesn't look like the consumer, although they might be all running on the same glass crystals and mirrors or the same code Mm -hmm. and data. But they're and seeing a different picture. Yes. About creating a beautiful view for everyone because if somebody decides that the platform doesn't work for them and is out of the customer coalition, the whole customer coalition may not get the benefits they need. So I've got to please multi-sided customers through my technology strategies and my experience strategies. And I have to have that mindset of kaleidoscopic value rather than one-to-one product to customer value. So that's one huge shift. The second one is we call it a commitment to mutualism 
which is basically a commitment to win-win. The idea of symbiosis is a scientific concept that is two living organisms coexisting together. Mm-hmm. And scientists say, well, there's different forms of symbiosis. There's a parasite yeah. where one is sucking the life out of the other. There's a one-sided benefits, the other side is neutral. There's a mm-hmm. name for that. And then there's a both sides thrive because of what they're doing for the other. And they call that mutualism as a form of symbiosis. And one of the cultural threats I have is if I can watch the customer use, I can take that data and use it against them rather than for them. You know, people worry that if I start shopping for my airline, that flight I want, all of a sudden the price of the very flight I wanted went up. And is my data being used against me? And it gets to the privacy mm-hmm. question that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second way to win through platforms at a, at a culture and a mindset level is creating a cultural commitment to mutualism. I don't know who at Apple thought, well, if you store your photos on our phone, we're going to make a home movie for you every month and send it to you for free and take that great family vacation and add music to it. And all of a sudden you have the nostalgic home movie that you ne- you always had on your list to create and never had time to do. They're taking that visibility and turning it into a benefit that say, man, I want my photos to be an iPhone because they're using it for me rather than using it against me. So I think that's a second. And then the third culture shift is what we'd call synchronized performance. And here we take inspiration from synchronized swimming teams because they have individual performance they have small team performance and they have big team performance. They have to hold their breath for 60 to 120 seconds as they're exercising underwater and not drown. So they have to focus on their performance. They're right beside somebody that they could give a concussion to or break their ribs with all their movements. So they have to think in small teams and then they have to say the whole team needs to look like they're performing art on the surface of the water because that's how we'll be judged. If I translate that into a platform business, I clearly have my own professional development and how I show up. I usually have my small teams. What's new about platforms is they connect our decisions in a way that they weren't connected before. So my team could be a little tribe into itself in the past in a product line world. And the choices we made didn't really affect other teams. But if we make choices on a platform, there may be ripple effects to other teams. So governance gets more connected. The contributions, I'm contributing to a shared asset, not one that I totally own myself. So there's a culture shift. It's threatening to product line managers who have built their whole careers owning something that was completely their fief. And now they're playing as a team member in a collective asset to move the whole collective asset forward. And these concepts are what drives the conversations, the points of view. And of course, I'm thinking and everybody's always complained about the silos and silos cannot exist in this new way. Is there really a new form of collaboration? Isn't there is a new form of collaboration. There's a whole chapters in the book on collaborative Mm go-to-market that ranges from my innovation teams to my marketing, sales, and customer success teams and how they need to work together in new workflows in order to make the platform a success. So it is a re-engineering of the company to pull off this re-engineered offer in the marketplace. And this involves shifting accountability and shifting the metrics, right? Shifting roles, shifting metrics, shifting ways of working, all of those above. So we have something that we call body, mind, and soul. And we talk about the different 
dimensions on which we have to change. We give the example of Disney just to bring it home and make it real. Disney uses two types of platforms. One is the magic band or the apps that follow me as I go through the park and watch me enjoy the park or my hotels. The other is Disney Plus, the streaming business. They also have an e-commerce business where they shut down their corner stores and they sell their merchandise directly, but they're increasingly linking that e-commerce to the park experience and to the movie watching experience on Disney Plus as well. So they're getting connections there. But I digress. If I think about the kind of shifts that it required to launch Disney Plus, I have these creative studio executives that are used to launching through movie theaters. And so streaming could be a threat to them because Disney might ask them to send it to streaming rather than send it to the movie theaters. Or they might ask them to bring it from the movie theaters home sooner than they might want to optimize the total revenue. And so when Disney created Disney Plus, it first of all created a Skunk Works team in New York that was far from Burbank, California, working with the acquired streaming technology company they bought and running it like a startup. They were fantastically successful, but they created a startup culture. Phase two, the Disney CEO, Robert Chopak moved them into the Disney entertainment business and sort of put them a bit in charge, mm-hmm. created the crisis Ooh. where the studio executives were threatening to leave right? because he wanted the logic of streaming to overlay the logic of theater. And that got so extreme that the CEO was asked to leave and Bob Iger was brought back oh. to retirement to keep everything together. And he created a new collaborative relationship between the streaming execs and the studio execs. And he said, you've got to work as a team to come up with optimization plans. So you could look over five years, three different operating models at Disney of creating the possibility of a platform, launching it very successfully. Integration try one, not so successful. Integration try two, they're now working it out. Furthermore, you've got investors going, hey, I wonder about the margins of streaming. I like the growth. What about the margins and how do we manage that? So it's a great example of how organizational transformation is required, both org structure, roles, responsibility, governance, but also talent systems and also Mm -hmm. cultural systems. So we talk about body, mind, and soul as the, the different ways of transformation that have to happen. And leaders need to work through these ripple effects of bringing a platform into their business to make sure that they can successfully perform at a high level. Yes. And, you know, for the rank and file, this is like, oh, yet another transformation, yet another another reorg. But that's the nature of business. Can you tell us how a much smaller company has transformed itself using a platform? I would love to hear that. Two thoughts. One is if I'm a startup, I'm probably a platform because that's probably why I got risk funding in the first place. But let me move to if I'm not a startup, because if I am a startup, all the plays in the playbook are ways to attack your markets, ways to disrupt the incumbents, ways to win. So boom, the playbook is just head on for you. But if I'm, let's say, a real estate broker and I'm not a platform, so I'm a small business, then I often have a question of how do I use, let's say, Zillow. Yeah, I was just thinking of Zillow. Or Realtor.com, which platform am I going to run on? How many platforms am I going to run on? How do I use them? So then I have to encounter the strategy of the platform company itself. 
So Zillow, just to use an example, got its start at a key moment of how much is my house worth? How much is the house I want to buy worth? They call it the Zestimate, the Zillow Estimate. And they grab the customer at that very first moment in the journey through a differentiated performance way back when. And from that, earn the trust of the customer to help them broker their relationships throughout the whole journey of their moving. So I can stay with Zillow and find a mortgage, find a broker, find a mover, find a plumber as part of this journey. And they can monetize the brokering of helping you find a person you might be in a city you might not know well or a neighborhood you may not know well. So how do I play that as a broker if Zillow starts creating power brokers that represent Zillow, which it has done, it has an association program where it asks for part of the margin, but it promises more lead flow. It promises me a lead stream that I'm going to get. But if I sell the house, they ask for a portion of the value. What's the economics for me as a small business owner working on a mighty platform? Do I trust it to have my interests in the ecosystem in mind, are they going to make me successful? And they're going to be my worst nightmare five years from now. So I think if I'm a small business, but not a tech owner, I have to choose my platforms carefully, but I probably have to work on one, if not more than one, to be digital. So that then I have a platform choice. If I'm a technologist starting up a new company, then I'm like, all systems go build a great platform. And the book speaks to all the kind of choices I need to make. One more question about platforms, and then I want to shift to the communication of ideas because you're an idea seller. But but just out of personal interest here, I find bank platforms extremely clunky. Is that ever going to get better? It's a great question. It may get better by non-banking companies making it better. Okay. Uh, Okay. I was on a podcast recently called Banking Transformed, and this question came up, Laura, because... (laughs) On the one hand, online banking is a classic platform example. Mm -hmm. Online investing is another one. So Mm -hmm. Charles Schwab or the robo-investors are an example. Even platform-based insurance, again, if the company that says, let me watch you take a risk and I'll price your risk based on how risky of an individual you look like. So insurance, investment, banking, platforms are everywhere. I think one of the issues of online banking is regulation. There's a lot of, it has to look like this, it has to say that, it can't say this, you can't offer that. So if it feels a bit like a commodity, in some ways the government has asked for it to be a commodity, that raises a real risk for banks, which was, I can become a boring platform, while Apple and Apple Pay and Apple Wallet may feel like an exciting brand that's innovating in all aspects of my life, and all of a sudden the at least parts of banking just look like another app, another feature on my app. And so how do I play that game if I'm a bank? Do I need to get broader than just the facts banking in order to create enough brand equity and relevance in my customer life that I maintain the right to be their banker? And then in those other areas where I'm not restricted, how do I do innovative things to boost the innovation equities in my brand? So I think there's really big questions in banking. Now, if I'm also, if I'm Bank of America and Merrill Lynch owned by the same company, then the question is, can I earn my equities in innovation management for the customer with all the ETF innovation, with all the robo going on? And how does that link that back to my banking relationship? So 
they're multi-level connections of strategy, but those are some of them that seem to be high level. And I agree with you. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of room for improvement. It's still pretty clunky. And Laura, I think part of that is the banks are almost, they're really product line companies disguised as platform companies. Internally, the product line logic of you're in charge of transfers, you're in charge of savings, you're in charge of checking. They're still fiefdoms inside the company. And they haven't really had the synchronized performance culture shift that you and I talked about a few minutes ago. And so you feel that as a customer trying to go from one function to the next, it feels really weird, like you're traveling one foreign country to another. All right. Uh, Well, you're someone who makes your living, your company exists based on your ability to go into a company where they know you maybe somewhat and you're able to sell a concept of something that doesn't even exist, but it could work. How do you do that? How, what is your principle of selling ideas? Yeah, I would say the first one is put your finger on the invisible truth because Truth is where the power is rather than spin. Often, we just haven't quite thought hard enough about something to go, what's the core idea that I really need to be communicating? So this idea of the customer as a choose journey and a use journey, and websites like the choose journey, but platforms like the use journey, it's very simple, but it's also fairly profound. And it's putting the finger on the core strategy issue of, Can I gain observability and can I interact and add win-win value? So I think distilling the idea down to its essence and saying, what's the core truth and how do I speak that plainly? And it'll have its own power rather than having to say it's all about whether the PowerPoint has animation in it. Those things can be helpful, but they sometimes are used as substitutes for the hard work of putting my finger on the truth. And I think then secondly, Follow the value. Make sure that your story is a story of value because anything you're going to suggest will have an investment trough and an ROI on the other side of it. If I haven't thought through roughly, not that I have the dollars and cents figured out, but the Mm -hmm. nature of the investment and the nature of the return, I can't sell in a concept without being fluent in that. And often people focus more on the idea but they forget about the story of value, which is actually what's going to work at the C-suite level. Exactly. They want to know what it's going to do for them, not how it works. Yeah. And then I'd say, finally, the third thing I would say is create a coalition of the willing. Understand where you have win-win allies around your idea. And don't treat your meetings as to where that discovery happens, where your allies emerge in real time, where you're maybe enemies, if I can put that in quotes, Yes. or your, your obstacles emerge in real time. Think that through, map that out on a whiteboard, go talk to your allies, understand what the objections of your blockers are going to be. Maybe go talk to your blockers too, because the best meeting of 10 executives is one where you've met with all 10 before you meet as 10. And everyone is hearing that one-on-one conversation you had with them And as a result, they're behaving in the room where if it's the first conversation, everyone is resorting to their defensive shield because you're sharing an idea that they haven't thought through and they go to risk mitigation is their very first thought. 
how could this go wrong for me? And their, their comments begin to probe on the how could it go wrong question, which then creates a negative spiral of conversation in the room and the energy just goes down. I think those are some of the keys to, it may end up looking like you were a great communicator, but communication is the layer that's resting on these three activities. Absolutely. You definitely want to get a copy of Winning Three Platforms. Of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. And Ted, this has been so mind-blowing and you're just bringing a new level of thinking. I know I have like a whole new vocabulary now. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? uh, You're speaking to some very clever, extremely good-looking, hardworking, highly conscientious high performers who they're listening to this because they they want to do more. They want to get better. They want more visibility. You know, they're hungry. There's nothing more powerful than a both-and executives who both knows technology and has a holistic view of business. That's a powerful punch in today's business world. So if, you're, if your readers feel like, hey, I know business, but I don't really understand this whole confusing platform thing, hopefully this we can help you round out a little bit that way. If you're like, I'm a great technologist, but I struggle with the business equation or how to show up as a business thinker. Hopefully, again, we can help you that way. But I just say the sort of the modern renaissance person is that both end technologist and business person, as well as change manager who can think about things like cultural shift and performance in synchronization and sort of buy into that and, and show up that way. I think that's the kind of person who you know we tapped on the shoulder to lead the next big project or to maybe get that promotion that they're seeking. Thank you so much, everybody. You're welcome. Please leave a review if you have found this useful, which I know you have. And I will catch everyone on the next episode.